Good morning, brethren. I take this opportunity to welcome everyone to our services this morning. If you're visiting with us or if you identify with us, if you are online and visiting or identify with us, it is a wonderful, joyous opportunity that we have to come together this morning to worship God. In this sermon this morning, in this sermon we want to examine what we must actually do in order to completely forgive. So before we get started, would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed, our loving Heavenly Father, we love you so very much. And Father, we thank you not only for the command that we must forgive, but we also, Father, thank you that we have the capacity within our hearts and our minds to do so. Heavenly Father, we know that we we do offend each other at different times. And Father, we know that the vast majority of those times, it is not intentional, but they do happen. And Father, we pray for the love that we have one for another. We pray for the strength that we have within ourselves, Father, to be mindful of who we are, what we are doing, and what we must do in order to have a spiritual, loving relationship with one another. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your love and blessing. These things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen and amen. The most asked question concerning forgiveness is this. How do I forgive or what must I do in order to completely forgive someone? And when people ask this question, most people are truly sincere in asking it because they truly have a desire to forgive when they have been offended, when they have been treated wrongly. We know that it begins by saying something like, I forgive you, but but what does my brain, what does my heart, what does my spirit have to actually do to sincerely forgive and, and then keep that forgiveness in its proper place? In this lesson the mechanics of forgiveness, I will try to explain to all of us how forgiveness works. In this lesson, I will try to explain what the Bible teaches us to do when we are offended by someone, we are, when we are treated badly by someone. But first of all, it is not always a person that injures us. Sometimes it's, a, it's an organization, it's a business, it's a team, it's a school, and the list could go on. And you know, when they offend us, what we have sometimes is we see that how difficult it is to deal with an organization because we're not dealing with an individual, but we are dealing with individuals. And dealing with this kind of a situation successfully is quite challenging and it requires, if you will, that we truly understand the process of forgiveness if we are to do this as God intends us to do it. So we start out by looking at some definitions. So we, we begin by getting an idea of what the various meanings of forgiveness is and, and, and so that we can get a basic understanding of it here. And we start with Webster. Webster says this, forgiveness, stop feeling anger towards someone who has done something wrong, or done something wrong to you. Stop blaming someone for having failed or failed you. No longer require payment, whether this be money or an apology, to make restitution for a wrong committed. Psychology says to consciously and deliberately decide to release feelings of resentment or vengeance towards someone or a group that has harmed you whether they actually deserve or are aware of your forgiveness of not or not. Like the dictionary, 
and modern psychology, the Bible defines forgiveness as pardoning an offender. Now, when we look at the Greek meaning of this word, it means to let go. For example, when a person does not demand payment for a debt lawfully owed, i.e. what we're saying is, I am letting your obligation to repay me go. You no longer have to do it. This is biblical forgiveness. The main difference between the dictionary, psychology, and biblical definitions is that the Bible sees forgiveness as a command from God that must be obeyed because it comes from God and is not simply something we do that is helpful or healthy in order for us to deal with conflict. Therefore, a forgiven nature is a necessary part of the Christian's character. This is confirmed by Jesus when he included this gracious act and when he gave us uh, the Lord's Prayer at Luke chapter 11 at verse 4. This is what the text says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. In the parable of the unmerciful slave, as we read in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, Jesus equated forgiveness with the canceling of a debt owed. We forgive others, therefore, we let go of anger, we let go of resentment, we let go of the desire for revenge, as well as any claim to to be compensated by any means, be that an apology or otherwise. The definition of forgiveness from a Christian's perspective, then, it may be easy to say, it may be easy to explain, but it's quite difficult to accomplish both physically and emotionally. But thankfully, thankfully, the Bible provides a motive for forgiveness beyond the practical ones like, it's the right thing to do or it's the best way to have peace and quiet or it's a good way to improve relationships. Oops. These things are all true, yes, but not the motivation that the Bible desires. The Bible sets unselfish love. And when we talk about unselfish love, we talk about the kind of love that our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus displayed, not only in his ministry, but also in his sacrificial death on the cross. It gives us these as a primary reason and motive to offer forgiveness to someone who has hurt us. Paul speaks of this type of motivation, forgiveness, when he gives us the reading at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 at verse 4. The Bible there says, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, love is not arrogant, love does not act unbecomingly, love does not seek his own, love is not provoked, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The apostle teaches us that love is not provoked to anger or revenge. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, let's look at that phrase for a moment, take into account. 
Take into account means this right here. It means creating an indebtedness for the person who has wronged us somehow. Taking into account means that they now owe us something, be it an apology, be it restitution. But when we look at this, we find that love does not operate this way. Not at all. The Bible presents forgiveness as a gracious act by a Christian who bears no ill will, no threat, or revenge for the injury suffered. Instead, offering offering forgiveness in exchange for the offense. Forgiveness, then, motivated by sacrificial love, which is perfectly modeled by Christ Jesus and his cross. So before presenting the actual mechanics of this virtue of forgiveness, I would like to describe some of the common misunderstandings about forgiveness by giving you five examples of what forgiveness is not. Number one, forgiveness is not the condoning of offensive behavior. You know, someone says something nasty, speaks out of turn, is impolite, says something which is untrue or hurtful, and we say, oh, that's no big deal. You know, it's all right. It's okay. Let's let's just forget about it and move on. Forgiveness not does not mean that we have to accept someone else's bad behavior without comment. Doing so usually, what I like to call, enables it or promotes additional bad behavior. The Bible very clearly condemns those who claim that bad actions are harmless or acceptable. We can see this in Isaiah 5 and verse 20. Forgiveness is not simply whitewashing something which is genuinely wrong or hurtful. Number two, forgiveness is not pretending that the offense never happened. Now, some deal with conflict or sin by denying that it exists, and they say, I don't need forgiveness because I haven't done anything wrong. We note that in the story of David, with his adultery with Bathsheba in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, that God eventually forgave David's terrible sins, but only after he acknowledged them. We also learn that the Lord... Our God let David experience the consequences of these offenses and even recorded them in the Bible so that we today in 2022 have them as a record so that we can benefit from the importance of that lesson. And the lesson is this. There is no healing from sin without revealing of sin. In other words, there's a little chance of comfort for the injured party, or forgiveness for the one who caused the offense, unless both parties acknowledge that there has been an offense. Number three, forgiveness is not allowing others to easily take advantage of you. Now, suppose a friend came up to you and borrowed a sum of money and chose not to pay you back. Then over a period of time, that same person came back and apologized and asked for more money in addition to what you'd already given them. 
You might show forgiveness by accepting the apology. You might even cancel the debt. This would be true forgiveness. However, you would be wrong, or not wise, I should say, or prudent, to continue to loan money to this individual under circumstances like that. So, which is to say, allowing yourself to be taken advantage of is not forgiveness. There's another word for it. It's foolishness. Number four, forgiveness is not pardoning without acknowledgement or repentance. God does not forgive people guilty of willful, malicious sin who refuse to acknowledge or repent of their behavior or apologize for those they've hurt. And I will say this, yes, the cross of Christ is available to everyone, even the worst sinner in the world. However, the person has to come to that cross and avail himself to the blood and its forgiven power if they truly wish to receive the pardon and reconciliation that God offers. Note Solomon at Proverbs 28 verses 13 and 14. Proverbs 28 verses 13 and 14. The Bible reads, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. There is no need to forgive those who has not who God has not forgiven, I should say. So when offended or injured by one of these people who neither ask for forgiveness and have not received it from God, the goal for the injured party is this right here, to avoid being consumed by rage, to avoid being consumed by resentment and anger. It's what was read this morning in uh, Romans chapter 12, as much as depends on me, be at peace with all men. Solomon 37 at verse 8 says, cease from anger, cease from anger, and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. At Hebrews chapter 10 at verses 24 through 30, we are told to trust that God will eventually bring these people into account. And also remember, God has promised that there will come a time at Revelation 21 at verse 4, there will come a time when we will no longer feel the deep pain that burdens us now because of the hurt that we have suffered on account of other people who have been unkind or unjust to us. Number five, what forgiveness is not. Sometimes forgiveness is not the issue. Sometimes we may be a little too sensitive and, and, and what is needed is not forgiveness. What is needed is a tougher and more patient attitude. Paul, when we look again in first Corinthians chapter 13 says that love is not sensitive, meaning that love is not easily offended. Now, some people are naturally inclined to, that's me, take offense too easily. But Solomon's wise advice in Ecclesiastes clearly speaks to this very issue. At Ecclesiastes chapter 7, at verse 9, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, at verse 9, this is what the Bible says. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. 
Solomon describes a person who is being overly sensitive and thus create an offense and drama where none exists. This leads to misunderstandings, it leads to broken relationships, and it leads to loneliness. Not just for the individual who is offended, but, but also for the individual who's doing the offending. So much for what forgiveness is not. Let's turn our attention now to the mechanics of what true forgiveness is. We've looked at the definitions of forgiveness and the misunderstandings of this particular virtue. Now I'd like to describe the mechanics of forgiveness, which are more easily understood when seen in in three parts, if you will, or three separate actions. These are the things that we have to do to actually do, actually think, actually feel for forgiveness to take place in our hearts and displace anger and the desire for revenge, which also begins in the heart. So what must I do to truly forgive? Number one, I must define the offense clearly and truthfully. Nothing happens in the process of forgiveness if I have not clearly defined the offense in an honest and objective. Notice I said objective, not subjective, in an honest and objective manner. I can't forgive something if I don't know or I am not able to truly and correctly articulate it to the person who offended me. For example, in the case of a cheating spouse, the offense isn't only the sexual infidelity, although this is quite painful to imagine, but the offense is also the lion that accompanies and supports the infidelity. As most of you know, I, I spent seven years preaching at Nakiski, and I had more than one opportunity to counsel someone, husband and wives, who was going through issues such as this. And what I found and what, what surveys have found that this, in counseling couples who have gone through this terrible experience, it has been noted that the most difficult part of it was not the forgiving of the sexual infidelity, but rather it was the forgiving of the lies that accompanied it. You see, lying is like a multiplier that heightens, if you will, the level of pain and damage done to the relationship. The sex may have happened only once or maybe twice, a few times, whatever, but the dishonesty was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The offended party then needs to forgive the adultery itself, but until the lion is also dealt with and forgiven, the episode will continue to cause pain, sorrow, and anger. Now, I've already mentioned the story of David and Bathsheba. Let's revisit it. Remember David, king of Israel. He saw this woman bathing. He sent for her. He laid with her. She became pregnant. He called her husband from the battlefield. Assuming that when he returned, being a man, he will go to his wife. She will, she's already pregnant. He will assume he impregnated her and it will cover up his responsibility for what he has done. When his plan didn't work, what did he do? He put the man back in the battle, made sure he was put in a position where he would be killed. A short time later, God sent Nathan, the prophet, to confront David about his sin. We're at 2 Samuel 12, 
verses 1 through 7. Now, in verses 1 through 4, we're not going to read. I'm just going to give you an overview of that. So in those first four verses, what Nathan does is he spells out an incident between a rich man and a poor man to David. And he told David how that rich man took this lamb from this poor man for his own purposes. Verse 5. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. At verse 7, Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Notice that Nathan's story did not suggests sexual lust or recklessness as the root cause of David's sin in this particular episode. But rather, like the rich man in the story, what we had here was have here rather is a callous heart. What we have is an insensitive conscience that allowed him to do these things without even a thought. David Hardness of heart led him to take for himself a woman whose husband was one of his devoted group of 30 bodyguards that was committed to his personal safety. We confirm this at 1 Samuel 23 at verse 39. These men, this man was ready to give his life for David. And what does David do? He knowingly takes his wife and then has his loyal soldier killed in the battlefield for his evil deed. Next, he lies to the nation and he goes on as if nothing happened, thinking that there would be no consequences whatsoever. He did not go to God in prayer. He did not go to God for forgiveness. Instead, God sent Nathan to accuse and uncover what David tried to keep secret. In doing so, reveal what the core sin was. The core sin was David's hardness of heart. David's hardness of heart enabled him to cheat, enabled him to lie, enabled him to murder without any response from his conscience. Many times, many times, we make an attempt to forgive and and see it as a a gesture or a peaceful way of ending some, some hurtful episode. An episode where we don't want to deal with the thing that causes the pain anymore. We offer a general one-size-fits-all type of forgiveness. But as time goes on, something happens. We continue to experience the internal pain and stress caused by the offense. Because what we do is this. We keep going over it, over and over in our minds. We keep debating the fairness and, and the results of it. We continue to experience the anger, the resentment, and frustration and sorrow despite our blanket forgiveness. We've said to the one who hurt us in some way, we're good. You're forgiven. However, we keep churning inside and can't seem to find any kind of closure. When these types of things happen, it's usually because we have not gotten to the true source of the offense. Getting to the true source of the offense is like finding the right tap to turn off when your home is flooding and you're trying to figure out how to get the water stopped. Here's my point, and it's this. 
until you find a true source of the offense and turn it off through forgiveness, it will continue to leak negative emotions despite the general all-purpose forgiveness that you may have offered in the past many times just to get things over quickly. As far as, as the mechanics of forgiveness is concerned, the first step is to identify exactly what the offense is so it can be consciously forgiven. Otherwise, it continues to cause pain. Why? Because we have not found the right tap to turn off. Next, let go. Really let go. Now, some people say, well, you have to forgive and forget. Brethren, <laughs> this is a noble sentiment. Forgive and forget. But let me tell you something else about this sentiment. It's unrealistic. It's unrealistic because something said or done to you that requires forgiveness usually has an impact that probably can never be forgotten. The important thing to remember about forgiveness is that you don't have to forget in order to accomplish sincere forgiveness. But you do have to let it go. You do have to let it go. Remember, the meaning of that Greek word, let something or someone go. But the question is this right here. And, and I think most of us understand the concept of, of letting go, but we are not sure how letting go actually is done. So how do I let go? Well, allow me to present to you some practical ideas that will help us let go in the process of forgiveness. The first is this. Forgiving others' offense is not optional. We have to remember, it's a command. Jesus said that, when we read this in Luke chapter 11 and verse 4, Jesus said that God continues to forgive us as we forgive others. Now, this is helpful information for those who are dickering back and forth over whether to forgive someone's offense or not. Knowing that offering forgiveness is a command, the neglect of which has consequences has a way of, of focusing the mind and gives direction to our actions. Why should I forgive? Simple. Because God demands this of me. Stop the mental churning. You know, we, some of us can remember back in the day when we had to churn dairy products. You know how we went about doing it? We, those slow, repetitive stirring of the ingredients until they became mixed and smooth. That's great for dairy products, but not for this. In the process of forgiveness, churning destroys the repeated reliving in our minds, in our minds of the hurtful episode that now require our forgiveness. Now, I've mentioned that Christian love does not take into account a wrong suffered. We talked about this at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. The idea is that a forgiven heart does not keep score for the purpose of revenge or mental review. Forgiveness, truthfully, does not erase the offense from our memory. 
is there. But it has effectively dealt with the offense itself so that there's no need to go back to review it. There's no need to go back to relive it. I'm reminded of a popular expression. And again, some of us older people can probably remember this. Been there, done that. When tempted to go back and relive, when tempted to go back and rechurn, when tempted to go back and, and re-prosecute an old offense, say to yourself, been there, done that. In other words, I have been to that place and I have offered forgiveness, but not only that, I have been forgiven and there is no reason to turn back. I have been there, I've done that, and more importantly, I am done with that. The practical way of dealing or rather the practical way of doing this is to change our habit of continually looking backwards and follows Paul's admonition to look to the future and what the future holds for all Christians. At Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3 at verse 13, the Bible reads, But one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. What lies behind? What lies behind? In my past are all the... In my past. I'm talking about James. In my past lies all the stupid, nasty, offensive, sinful things that I did. As well as... All the nasty, stupid, offensive things that other people have done to me. Looking backwards is not what God has caused me to do. Paul teaches us that we have to, that we have been rather called to heaven. Drawing up Satan tactics, and he does that to keep us spiritually immobilized. If we are consumed by the past and it hurts, we come to a standstill in our Christian walk because there is nothing we can do to change the past. Looking forward, however, looking forward, forces us to mobilize our spiritual resources. It creates hope. It creates joy in us. It limits the ways that Satan and the world can negatively affect us. When I am tempted to, to, to go back to relive something, I say to myself, been there, done that. I have, for, I have forgiven so-and-so for this. I have been forgiven by so-and-so for this. There's nothing there for me anymore. You can be sure that it is never God who is forcing you to look backwards. God always asks us to look forward because that's where God is. The only thing of consequence in our past, if we are Christians sitting in here, the only thing of consequence in our past is the cross of Christ Jesus, the one that he went and suffered and died on so that we will have this access. The only thing of consequence in our future is heaven. And you know what? We can say this right here. And so I live between the cross and heaven. This is where I am at, and this is where I will stay 
Letting go, brethren, requires the personal discipline. We talked about this last Wednesday. Letting go requires the personal discipline to resist the temptation to repeatedly fight the battles of the past and remain focused on the victory that awaits us in the future. The third item in the mechanics of forgiveness, cancel the debt. Cancel the debt. In the parable of the ungrateful servant in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about a slave who had, who was forgiven a great debt by his master, who after being set free refused to forgive a fellow servant that owed him a debt. And as a result, the servant lost his freedom. Now, an interesting feature about this parable is the simple way it demonstrates that the basic idea of forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. In the parable, the servant owed his master a debt, 10,000 talents. Like Russ was talking during the uh, during the focus, he, he laid out that figure of Elon Musk. If you look at by today's dollars, 10,000 talents, it's about $7 billion. The master waived away a repayment plan. The master simply canceled the debt owed in the conversation. Now, what we tend to do at this right here, we start majoring in the minor instead of the major. We major in the minor by saying, well, how in the world did he get to owe him that much money in the first place? That's majoring in the minor. The major is this right here. The major is this. We owe God a debt we cannot pay. And God cancels the moral debt that we have by paying it off with the death of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus on the cross. The point this parable teaches us is that forgiveness requires us to cancel that debt that others owe because of how they have offended or hurt us. When offended, when cheated, when hurt, we are owed justice. We are owed an apology. We are owed some form of compensation. Forgiveness means that we release the offender from the apology, from the compensation. We release them from any obligation to repay these things. Now, I will say this. Some refuse to forgive because revenge or the threat of it is what helps them deal with the hurt. It helps them deal with the damage caused by the original offense. The problem here is that the healing doesn't start until the debt is paid by someone. Forgiveness takes place when that debt is canceled, not by the offender, but by the offended party. Counseling the debt puts control of the hill and it puts closure, it puts peace in the hands of the offended party, not the offender. Because you do, you think about the offender, the offender can rarely give or do what will bring peace anyway to our lives. I know sometimes we, we talk about appealing to the justice system. We won't go there. But, you know, leaving the matter to be influenced by Satan 
will only prolong the pain because Satan has an objective. In this, in hell, he wants us to suffer eternally. And in this life today, between here and there, he wants us to continue to suffer. Consider for a moment the benefits of forgiveness. Just consider this for a moment. Emotional freedom. Hmm. Peace of mind. Hmm. Closure with the past and spiritual satisfaction because the right and Christ-like thing has been done. All of these benefits only come when we consciously and deliberately articulate the offense against us and who caused it. It helps. It helps us when we let go the negative feelings, when we let go of the desire for revenge by refusing to dwell on the past and do what? And remain focused on Jesus our Lord and the life that he has given us now as well as the heavenly reward promised to us in the future. And thirdly, as mentioned, cancel the debt. Whatever is rightfully owed to you, Free yourself from the debt by giving it to our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus to collect a judgment. And you can be sure he will definitely collect that debt. In closing, remember that the first step in personal healing and peace of mind, not to mention possible reconciliation with other people, is forgiveness. Once the debt is canceled, you can go back to, to living your life in Christ Jesus. Brethren, if you, if you haven't gotten it, I'm gonna just go ahead and say it. We have been talking about interpersonal relationships that we have with one another as sisters and brothers in Christ, as a, as a family of God. And we risk losing our soul, brethren, if we refuse to forgive a brethren in Christ who has said something or done something that, that, that just hurt our feelings and, and, and we maintain that resentment. Not just for a few days, but sometimes for years. Now speaking about debt, I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you that all of us have a sin debt owed to God. Now, if we break human laws, what happened? We have to pay the debt of some kind. Money for a speeding ticket, we go to jail for robbing the bank. When we break the law, that's the law. Justice demands a price for punishment. In the same way, when we break God's laws, such as lying, sexual sin, dishonest, dishonoring our parents, murder, stealing, etc., we incur a moral debt owed to God, the one who establishes all laws. The price for violating God's law is death, which is separation from God. In other words, if we sin, we die, Romans 6.23a. The good news, and there is good news in all of this, however, is that Christ Jesus paid that moral debt of death for us with his sacrifice on the cross. But not only that, he offers guilty sinners forgiveness based on faith in him, initially expressed through repentance and baptism, Acts 2.38. In this way, in this way. Instead of suffering spiritual death and eternal separation from God, we are raised from the dead to everlasting life with him in heaven. All of this is made possible because Christ Jesus paid the moral debt we owed, allowing God to offer us forgiveness 
and eternal life. The mechanics of God's forgiveness for our sins are quite simple. Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and express that faith in repentance and baptism receive not only forgiveness, but indwelling of God's Spirit. And this same God, according to Romans 8 and verse 11, this same God will raise us up from the dead when Christ Jesus returns. Therefore, in closing, I encourage everyone here, in person and online, I encourage everyone to remember the steps to take in order to forgive others sincerely and effectively for their sins against us. And along with that, carefully examine ourselves to be sure that we have consciously responded to, to God's offer of forgiveness for the sins that we have committed against him. This message is yours. For our online family and visitors, it would be a joy. It would be a joy to hear from you. It would be a joy to see you. It would be a joy to meet you. The hymn of encouragement is before us. If there are needs, please make them known by coming forth as we stand and sing. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can be afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Oh! Uh-huh.